everyone. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm here with Joan Merrill from the University of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Research and Medi Medical and Research Foundation, OMRF. Joan is a very well-known lupologist. I've known her since we both did fellowship. We did that like two or three years ago. Um, and she's going to talk to us tonight about what does COVID-19 have to do with lupus? Hello, Joan. Hello, Jack. Actually, you're wrong. That's not how we met. We met standing next to two posters, and I kept bothering you, and you kept telling me to go away. <laughs> was that last year, or was that, 20, was that 30 years ago? Uh, it could have been 40. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. We're glad you're here. It's going to be a very interesting session. Um, uh, I got a preview of the slides, so you're going to like this. But I want to start off with a little bit of news that involved Joan and get some of her take on this. Um, you know, last week's New England Journal had a lead report about hydroxychloroquine. Over 1,300 patients treated either with or not with hydroxychloroquine. These are severe, severely affected COVID-19 patients. And it basically showed no difference in the outcomes, the outcomes being survival or intubation. Joan, does that surprise you that the, a, a lot of studies lately have really not shown any effect of hydroxychloroquine? Well, the first study that really uh, came to the attention of the national press was this online YouTube video by that guy with very long stringy hair from France who uh, was announcing that it was a complete cure, but not exactly telling us how sick the patients were to start with. Isn't that a problem right now that we're getting all of our hints, not necessarily good evidence, but hints from press releases, um, YouTube videos, um, you know, preprints. It's a little worrisome. Yeah. Well, at the other end of that spectrum, there was a, an article in the New England Journal uh, last week uh, cautioning us stupid doctors who aren't from Harvard, I guess, uh, that we really shouldn't like draw conclusions when there isn't very much evidence which I thought was a little talky-downy, because the fact is even the most august bodies of people who do this kind of thing and make recommendations have websites that change every day because what evidence we have, we've got to use, and it's an evolution. Right. Um, and it's really corona A to Z, and right now the Z lately seems to be, or the next Z seems to be the kids with the Kawasaki-like disease, a lot of anecdotalism at this point, and it's a worry. It's a, and it's a worrisome manifestation, a worrisome outcome. Um, yeah. Second, second item: Why are men more severely affected than women? Is 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 this proof that God is a woman? Um, no, or, you're just the weaker sex. God's probably still a man. And I'm told that on a daily basis by my partners and 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 staff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're talking about me directly or or my um, my chromosomes. But there was a paper that um, was recently published on a biobank study on heart failure that looked at over 1,400 men and almost 600 women. And, and they basically looked at circulating ACE2 levels and found them to be much higher in men than women. And they postulated that, that maybe that's the reason why men are the ones who get the more severe manifestations of coronavirus. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because uh, right now, that is to me the big enigma. Why, why are the horror cases, I mean, the elderly are dying quickly with this. The, there's this, this um, very few kids get it, but they, when they do get it, they can get it bad. 
Um, but mm -hmm. the virus is not is, is non-discriminatory. You look at the ICUs, there's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year old people, but the ones that plague me are the 50, 60 year old ones who have, who go to the ICU, get tubed and don't usually have very good outcomes. Um, and the question is why- Or the 60 young men with strokes. What the heck is going on there? Well, you're gonna tell us, I think in your lecture, right? I'll try. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good preview. I'm gonna end with two financially uh, motivated reports. One is a report from the American Hospital Association say that hospitals in the U.S. are going to lose $50 billion a year beginning in March, extending to July 1. That's $200 billion in the first four months of this condition, of this uh, 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 crisis. And then a recent report on Medscape today uh, showed that hospital uh, occupancy is down by at least 55% across the board. And when they looked at you know, certain disciplines, there are a lot of people that are not going into the hospital, whether it's for breast cancer care or ophthalmology, rheumatology down 66%, gastroenterology and hepatology 58%. Um, the idea is that there's a severe financial consequence to all of this. And my worry is, is that the impetus to take us back maybe too soon? Do you have a feeling about return to normal? Are you asking me? You're the only one here. I never could define normal, so that's kind of a hard question for me. But I would say this. I would rather get killed, have it done, and go back, and it's okay and it's safe. Okay. I mean, this is, this is going to very much matter, um, boil down to a matter of personal choice. Today, Fauci, um, I watched the press conference. He basically said, if we go too soon, if we're too cavalier, there's going to be a price to pay. And he basically yeah. was expressing caution. And then the politicians came on and said, you're killing us, Dr. Fauci, because the president is telling us, get back to normal. And, and we don't know what to do, whether to listen to you, the scientists, or listen to our leaders, the, the president. You know, and obviously there's a finance and a re-election oh. business and a economics. And then there's also truly- Well, well Jack, there is, there is a case to be made that it might be a little different from place to place, right? So. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I mean, yeah, the story in- in Oklahoma City right now is going to be very different than it is in, in Bergen County, New Jersey. Um, yeah. But who's to say that, you know, where those two stories are going to go in the next two months? That's going to be interesting. And how is an individual supposed to know what their risk is? So that's the other thing that I think is keeping people home. Well, and this is where your, um, you and I and all those that are on the line need to lead or find a leader that you can emulate because people are looking to us to give them the smart answers. I mean, I'm still, I'm still amazed in, in week six or seven here, how many people I'm talking to that have been truly paralyzed by this situation. I mean, I talked to a, a patient today uh, who's got a severe neurologic manifestation and bad RA and she's being put on rituximab. And the nurses at the infusion suite told her that, you know, her immune system is going to be wiped out and that, that along with her RA and the COVID, she might as well, you know, write a death certificate. I mean, she was a, an absolute panic, obviously bad information, but I mean, this is, again, this is where we have to lead um, to, to really protect our patients. Yeah, I, th I think we really have to really think day by day. We have to really think about the inflammatory state of our patient. Uh, the other end of that spectrum is you take away all the people's drugs and they can't function either and they could even get worse. So, you know, as we, we just have to be calm and practical and use what minimal tools we have while searching the literature for better tools because they're coming. 
right, I want to remind our audience that uh, if you want to ask a question, and please do, um, uh, press the Q&A button on the bottom of your screen and put in your questions. We'll be taking those and doing those until the top of the hour at the end. I'm going to bow out and hide myself. And Joan, you're going to take over and drive this by sharing your screen. Okay. This involves clicking a few buttons, so you'll have to bear with me for a second. There we go. Here we are. I'm on. Okay. So uh, I'm going to talk about what lupus has to do with COVID-19. Uh, but uh, spoiler, nothing. But there are some uh, very interesting things that are happening in COVID-19, and lupus may be able to give us a lens to take a closer look at some of that. Now, I'm going to try to figure out how to click it. Ah, there we go. Here are my disclosures, except I understand this is not a CME meeting, so we'll skip that. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start by presenting a lupus case, and it's probably a lupus case that most people here have seen somebody like, uh, but maybe not very often. So this is actually way back when in 2005. I've been doing this case since then, and I'm even older than that, uh, but... Uh, it was such an illustrative case that I just keep showing it. This was a 17-year-old uh, young woman. She'd had lupus for four years, so obviously she had real childhood-onset lupus. Uh, her past manifestations included arthritis, rashes, and really characterized by constitutional flares, fever, anorexia, and weight loss. No history of nephritis, but she almost always had an anti-double strand of DNA antibody and low C3. So boy, did we keep our eyes on that, because that's exactly the kind of patient you really expect to see some nephritis in. Uh, she'd been stable, and just, you know, just to hedge our bets, we had her on MML, and she was doing fine on two grams a day for more than six months. And then in March 2005, she showed to clinic with diffuse facial swelling, almost like angioedema, Male or rash, lethargy, fevers, and anorexia, kind of like her usual flare. Uh, however, uh, blood tests were sent, and back uh, about a month before, or less than a month before, she had a hemoglobin of 11.3, and now it was 10.2, so that wasn't too scary. But the platelets had dropped from 152 to 53, uh, and we noticed uh, for the first time that she had a low albumin, or she had last time. Uh, so after this clinic visit, uh, oh, the other thing I probably should mention is that um, uh, her creatinine clearance was good, but she had uh, elevated protein to creatinine ratio. So it looked like she was spilling the equivalent of more than a gram a day of protein. So we brought her back uh, as quickly as we could. And by this time, the hemoglobin had dropped to 7.4. Platelets were steady. C3 was found to be low and her protein to creatinine ratio was now in the nephrotic range. So she was sent to the emergency room, uh, but she didn't come to our hospital right away. She was uh, uh, lived pretty far away. So she went to a, a hospital uh, in Altus, Oklahoma, or near there somewhere. Uh, and when she got there, her hemoglobin was 6.3 and her serum creatinine was up to 2.5. Uh, immediately gave her a transfusion of red blood cells and she received a gram of solumedrol each day for three days, which was the kind of industrial strength steroids that we were still using in 2005 in Oklahoma, but that's a bit gone out of fashion now because we don't think we need so much. Uh, and that did help her platelets stabilize, but her hemoglobin kept dropping. Uh, she was retransfused, and they uh, actually put her in a helicopter and helicoptered her to Oklahoma City to see us. Uh, so at the 
this point, um, her hemoglobin, you know, had she just been transfused, it was pretty good. And then over the next few weeks, it sort of hovered, you know, in safe, but not so great areas, particularly given the fact that she ended up getting seven transfusions. Um, her platelets uh, remained stable. Her haptoglobin was very low. Her LDH was very high. Uh, a renal biopsy was performed, which showed class 4 nephritis and diffuse microfrombi throughout the kidney. Um, her blood pressure went up on the 22nd of March. Uh, she developed fever, so she was thought to have malignant hypertension. Uh, and the following were given to her over this period of time, cyclophosphamide, uh, heparin, um, plasma exchange uh, for many, many uh, exchanges, uh, and high-dose steroids. And then in the end, she was given rituximab and dramatically recovered. So what was this case all about? This was a patient with lupus who had hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, microangiopathy proven by biopsy in small renal vessels, acute renal failure, malignant hypertension, and seizures. Boy, this sounds like thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, doesn't it? Now, of course, uh, TTP is not um, primarily a lupus thing. It, uh, the actual diagnosis is made um, because the person has a genetic variant of a uh, protease that cleaves von Willebrand's factor, and that protease is called ADAMTS13. So you inherit the propensity. Of course, you can be fine for a very long time, and then suddenly something triggers off a little bit of extra clotting in you, and everything goes nuts. And this protease isn't working well. The von Willebrand factor is accumulating in blood vessels. The platelets stick to the von Willebrand's factor um, sort of uh, dimers and trimers and quatimers, and eventually you get uh, microthrombi, and it can be quite diffuse and quite life-threatening. Uh, so that's an inherited uh, condition. There's another inherited condition that's very similar called hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, primarily described in children, but can be seen in anyone. And it's caused uh, not by an inherited variant, but by uh, the Shiga toxin, which was originally identified as being made from E. coli. So these were people with E. coli infections. Other bacteria also make Shiga toxin or something enough like it that it's called Shiga toxin. And what happens is that this uh, toxin uh, actually plants itself in the vasculature and triggers off uh, a series of events so that you also end up with diffuse microthrombi, usually in the setting of something that had started to trigger off uh, thrombosis. So people are fine, and then suddenly this will happen to them. Um, now, what is this lupus TTP thing? It turns out that there is a subset of patients who make antibodies to ADAMTS13, and this happened to be uh, an example of one of those people. And in one study, for example, it showed that uh, if you look at the bottom here, people who have uh, lupus and the antiphospholipid syndrome uh, about 18% will actually have antibodies to ADAMTS13. And what's interesting about that is they can't, maybe they're not all bad antibodies, or maybe uh, they only get in trouble under certain conditions, uh, which are poorly defined at this time. Uh, but certainly 18% of lupus patients with antiphospholipid syndrome do not develop this TTP-like syndrome. It's quite rare. I'm guessing almost everyone has seen or heard of a case like this. Maybe they've seen or heard of four cases if they're old like me, 
but probably haven't seen it very much because it's rare. There's another overlapping kind of syndrome, which gives you very similar clinical um, effects. And this syndrome is called the catastrophic antifoxylipid syndrome. This was first described by Ron Asherton, Asherson in uh, 1992. He was describing a series of patients with rapid onset, even over a week, multi-organ failure, uh, associated with small vessel thrombi. This is the theme we're going to get here with small vessels that are uh, clotted up, uh, which is, of course, differentiated from primarily large vessel occlusions of the antiphospholipid syndrome. But remember that those tend to be sporadic. Uh, and this is a bunch of things happening at once. So you can actually get large and small vessel thrombi rapidly uh, happening throughout the body. 48% uh, uh, of those people do not have lupus. 40% uh, uh, do have lupus and the antiphospholipid syndrome. And I'm not sure what the other percentage are, I guess, undefined. Uh, this uh, syndrome has an extremely poor prognosis. It's one of the worst kind of syndromes of this kind. Uh, but prognosis definitely improved once uh, people started using some of the therapies that had been in place for TTP, such as plasma exchange, uh, of course, heparin, uh, and IVIG. Uh, but usually these patients also will require steroids and cytotoxics. So it's a very aggressive kind of a treatment. 100% of people with a catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome have antiphospholipid antibodies because you can't make the diagnosis without it. 70% uh, have kidney involvement, and there's a high prevalence of uh, involvement of the lungs, heart, brain, and skin. Uh, homolysis is not all that common. It's been uh, described in 26%. And note that you don't always have to have low platelets to have this syndrome. So uh, a good uh, minority of these patients don't even have low platelets, and a lot of them who do have low platelets, uh, that's really not necessarily the primary pathology of the syndrome. So we have a bunch of these syndromes that overlap, and this, I couldn't fit everybody on the slide, so I left out things like scleroderma, renal crisis, uh, and the health syndrome, and other things that we actually see in the practice of rheumatic diseases. Uh, but here I'm lining up the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, and you notice I colored everything here yellow because uh, I'm comparing it to some of the other overlapping syndromes. Hemolytic uremic syndrome uh, is really quite similar, but there's some differences. For example, you see schistocytes in hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, and it would be a little bit more rare to see antiphospholipid antibodies. Atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome is a version of hemolytic syndrome, and some say that uh, this was discovered by the nephrologist, and some say they stole half our lupus patients and put them into this category. It depends on who you are. Uh, but uh, it's a very interesting syndrome because it is actually now known to be caused by a disorder of complement. These people are inheriting variants in complement regulatory proteins or complement proteins. Uh, and basically otherwise is very, very similar to hemolytic uremic syndrome by the definitions and quite similar to the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. And then, of course, next to there, I've got TTP or the autoimmune lupus version of TTP, uh, which really are indistinguishable from each other clinically, except for whether you have a genetic a problem or an antibody against the drug that had the genetic variant. Uh, and maybe uh, they, too, are very much like the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. Finally, I want to call your attention to disseminated intravascular coagulation. 
a much better known syndrome and a little bit more common. We see it a lot in elderly people with sepsis. Uh, and there certainly are overlaps and there certainly are similarities, but there's some major differences with this one. This one um, often has bleeding and clotting at the same time. Now you can see that in the lupus TTP, but you don't see it that often. This is often, uh, so it's not a board question. Um, the lupus TTP is a board question. And I got that one right one year and wrong the other year. I don't know what happened to me, but anyway, um, this one, uh, quite, quite frequently you see bleeding at the same time as you see clotting, uh, you also see hemolytic anemia. So uh, this is really a little bit more different than the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome clinically. Uh, but we're going to move on and talk about that a little bit more. So DIC actually has a different pathology, or it, it, although they overlap to some extent, um, what happens in DIC is that there's sepsis or trauma or some trigger like that, um, which causes endothelial cell damage, and this activates tissue factor in the endothelium. And then you get thrombin production. And for various reasons, the thrombin production is extreme, and there's a consumption of all the fibrinolytic and anticoagulant factors, which is much you know, more strong than uh, any consumption of the clotting factors. So it's called a consumption coagulopathy, and they accumulate fibrin in small and mid-sized vessels, and then they get organ failure. Uh, and then they also get depletion or consumption of platelets, and that causes uh, bleeding. Now, the, the other thrombo, thrombotic microangiopathy syndromes that I showed you on that slide all share something quite interesting, which is they all have an integral part of their pathology mediated by complement, all of them. Uh, so they may be triggered by infection as well, or trauma, or we don't know quite what, but there's autoimmunity going on. Uh, we do know a lot of the in inheritable and not inheritable predispositions. So we, we've talked about the inherited variants of complement. Guess what? Uh, not only have those been found in the uh, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, they've been found in the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome as well. So we don't always know which one we're talking about in an individual patient. Uh, we talked about the inherited variants of ADAM-TS13, and we talked about the Shiga toxin. So all of these different kinds of ways of getting to this, this final common pathway actually does lead to a, a very similar overlapping pathway. The important thing to know is this is not a consumption coagulopathy, uh, and you don't have a, a, you don't have a lowering of, of protein C and protein S and anticoagulant factors the way you do with EIC. Uh, so it's somehow a very strange interplay between complement inflammation and coagulation. And, you know, it may not be surprising then that the treatments for these conditions are a bit different. So for uh, disseminated intravascular coagulation, pretty much all you have to do is anticoagulate and treat the underlying cause. If it's sepsis and you know the bacteria, you, you hit hard with antibiotics. I do a little praying, but you really don't go into treating it like an autoimmune condition. All of the complement-associated thrombotic microangiopathies require more than that. Yes, you do anticoagulate. Yes, you would give uh, something for the underlying cause if you know what it is. But you need high-dose steroids. You need plasma exchange and or IVIG. And you might consider rituximab or some other immune suppressant as well. Well, wait a minute, if these are complement-associated TMAs, what about targeted complement inhibition? Here's my little picture of the complement cascade, and I'll remind you that there's 
sort of three major pathways. The classical pathway that we know from lupus involves immune complexes triggering off a series of cascade of complement proteins. The lectin pathway associated with uh, microbial carbohydrates triggers off uh, a kind of different kind of series of events. And the alternative pathway, uh, which starts on activating surfaces, which could be in the context of infection or not, um, triggers off its own specific kind of events, all of which in all cases leads to something called a C5 convertase. C5 is this clinical linchpin of the whole place. Um, and so it gets cleaved into either C5 or it gets cleaved into both C5A and C5B. C5A is a fascinating little character because it triggers inflammation like crazy. It's a very nasty little molecule. It activates monocytes and neutrophils, which are, by the way, key players in the innate immune response. It actually can trigger them to go around in circles and suddenly you get a lot of type 1 interferons going on. Uh, and it also activates coagulation. So it's a nasty little player, and doesn't that sound like lupus? And doesn't that sound like microangiopathy? Uh, C5B, meanwhile, of course, becomes part of the membrane attack complex. It's meant to destroy the pathogen, but often destroy some of our own cells while it's at it. So we find out that the various thrombotic microangiopathies that are complement-mediated can trigger any one of these pathways, and sometimes two. Uh, the alternate, alternative pathway is the one that is most frequently activated by, um, by uh, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, but some of the others can do the same thing, and then they can activate the lectin pathway or the classical pathways. So complement activates platelets, complement induces tissue factor on endothelial cells, monocytes, and neutrophils, and this is all very intimately related with what goes on in an innate immune response. What's an innate immune response? Remember, that's what we do when we don't have any antibody memory of some pathogen coming in our body. When you get a new pathogen, you haven't stored up some antibodies that's going to recognize it because you never saw it before. So you're going to get a lot of innate immunity going on. I'm getting towards COVID. I know you've guessed, but that's what's happening with this new virus. We've never seen it before. So we're going to be relying heavily on our innate immune response. And when we get to the point where we're gonna have an adaptive immune response and start to make antibodies, we're not sure exactly what the right antibodies are. It's gonna take us some time. We're gonna make a lot of different kinds of antibodies to try to see if we can get rid of that pathogen. And some of them are gonna form immune complexes. So we may be, uh, you know, we may be potentially activating any of these pathways. Uh, so a complement, um, I'm sorry, a yes, complement inhibitor, eculizumab, uh, has been associated uh, in TMAs when treated, people with TMAs have been treated with decreased interferon signals and decreased evidence of all of these pathways. Quite interesting, uh, but also the, the interesting piece of this is that the interferon signal goes down, suggesting again that uh, the complement system, the interferon system, all of these inflammatory pathways and the coagulation pathway are very much um, tied with each other with back and forth crosstalk and uh, sort of perpetuating each other. So let's look at eculizumab a little better. What is it? It's, it actually binds to C5 and it inhibits the C5 convertases from cleaving it. So you don't get that nasty C5A and you don't get the membrane attack complex and it pretty much uh, shuts off a whole lot of the self-perpetuating aspects of these diseases, 
at least in theory. Do we have any double-blind placebo-controlled trials to prove that it works in these um, conditions? Well, these are rare conditions, and no, we don't. But there are a number of published case series which show surprisingly dramatic results in the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, in atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, in typical hemolytic uremic syndrome, in autoimmune TTP-like syndrome or lupus TTP-like syndrome, in transplant-associated thrombomicroangiopathy, one of the ones I couldn't fit on my slide before, in the HELP syndrome, another one I couldn't fit on my slide before, but our lupus patients get that at the end of pregnancy, very serious condition. And also now there is a uh, anecdotal observation about COVID-19 getting better. What am I talking about? Well, it turns out that in the past month or two, uh, there have been increasing reports that really weren't that clear from the original uh, reports from China and the original ones from Europe. But it started in Italy and then started spreading around the globe. Lots of reports from New York now that there's a striking prevalence of thromboembolic events in this disease. Quite unexpected if you think about other viral infections and, and you do get some thrombosis, but this is quite unexpected related to them. And that includes some of those serious coronavirus infections, uh, SARS infections. Uh, of course, our population of affected people are older and they have comorbidities. So at first, you know, maybe it was attributed to that. But in one series of 1,026 patients who had uh, a COVID-19 infection, 40% were found to have thrombotic risk profiles, like blood tests. And in a study of 184 ICU patients, there was a 31% incidence of thromboembolism, serious thromboembolism, despite the fact that these patients were on thromboprophylaxis at regular doses. Also, increasing reports of severe thrombotic events in younger people without known risk factors, and then these odd reports of patients developing severe gas exchange deficits even though uh, by imaging and by listening to their lungs, their lungs seem to be very well aerated. Uh, now, this was widely interpreted as disseminated intravascular coagulation. Yeah, they saw some low platelets, although they weren't all that low. Uh, there was widespread thrombosis, uh, and there was significantly elevated LDH and D-dimer, and all of those things do suggest DIC. And so that's what was being reported in the tabloids. And you can see there's been a lot of reporting in the tabloids. My favorite is doctors don't know why. Um, so uh, one way of trying to make sure we understand what's going on in these patients is to look at autopsies. There are not a lot of autopsies. Most of them are not systematic. They're not looking at every patient coming down the pike. Uh, but they, a lot of them are trying to find people who don't have too many other comorbid diseases. Uh, but some of them, even so, do not find uh, a thrombo thrombotic microangiopathy. Uh, but here's a report from Magro um, looking at the skin and lung from five patients who had respiratory failure. He did not find a lot of inflammation in the lungs. He found fibrin deposits in septal capillaries. He had some neutrophils, you know, kind of uh, an innate immune response infiltrating the intraalveolar septae. There were microvascular deposits of complement components and mannose binding lectin associated serine prote protease, uh, which is uh, associated with the, um, the complement cascade. 
So three out of the five patients had purpuric skin lesions, such as had been described in the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. And again, they found a thrombotic vasculopathy and, de and deposition of complement. And they found that in both affected and normal skin. Two of the five cases, they actually found the COVID-19 spike glycoproteins sitting there in the same spots with complement components, uh, both in the microvasculature and in, in, in the lungs. So they concluded that this was a catastrophic systemic microvascular injury mediated by activation of the alternative and lectin-based complement pathways. So if you think about it, here we've got a picture of the COVID-19 thrombomicroangiopathy affecting these same pathways we were talking about before. Uh, and there's just one more little interesting factoid that I'm not sure we ought to make too much of yet. It was in a pre-publication, but it described a nucleocapsid protein um, of several of the SARS viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, which is our virus, uh, binding directly to uh, a key protease in the lectin complement pathway. So it is possible this thing's triggering off complement all by itself. So now I've lined it up with the other uh, TMA syndromes. And what you can see, I, what, what I've colored orange all the things where CAPS doesn't look like DIC or some of the others. Uh, but as you can see, it's matching CAPS almost completely. Now, is it the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome? No, obviously not. It's a viral associated thing and we know what's causing it. Or at least by circumstantial evidence, we're pretty sure that wasn't a coincidence. Uh, but they, there are now reports of lupus anticoagulant or antiphospholipid antibodies. Uh, found quite frequently in these patients. I would caution you, we're not sure what that means because uh, once you get people who are extremely ill and or septic, uh, these antibodies tend to show up and we're not sure whether they're pathogenic or not. And there's a lot we don't know about these reports, but they're there. Uh, so I colored it yellow, but if you want, you can cross out that yellow one. It's still very much like the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. So in summary, um, we have a potential disease model here. The virus gets it, you know, you breathe it in, it gets into your upper respiratory tract, it goes down into your alveoli. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna like to be there because it has receptors on the um, on the uh, on the on the cells in the lung there. And uh, so there it is. And then there's an interface right there with the small blood vessels that nourish the and where the oxygen goes across in your lungs. Uh, now there's gonna be a obviously an innate immune response. You're going to get neutrophils, you're going to get monocytes, you're going to get type 1 interferon, you're going to get tissue factor, and you're going to get little clots. And that's pretty much what seems to be going on in a reasonable subset of these patients. So in conclusion, COVID-19 is associated with a life-threatening complement-mediated inflammatory thrombotic microangiopathy, which unlike the other conditions that are so similar to it, does not appear to be rare. Most of the patients who develop this disorder are not receiving the interventions that are thought to be necessary to treat this. Uh, the recommendations for disseminated intravascular coagulation, which a lot of major medical bodies are still calling this, uh, are anticoagulation, and in this case, it would be an antiviral treatment. And, you know, we've had some success with anticoagulation. We've had some success with antiviral treatment and people are dying anyway. 
Recommendations for complement-mediated thrombotic microangiopathies also include other immune suppression. Well, there's been kind of a, a patchwork attempt at immune suppression in some of these patients around the world, but nothing very organized. Uh, there are some clinical trials going on right now we don't know the results of particularly, although uh, one uh, uh, IL-6-targeted uh, agent seems to have not done very well in a clinical trial. Uh, but also, it's recommended to do plasma exchange and or give uh, intravenous immunoglobulin in these kinds of cases. Uh, and more recently, there's a growing case, at least anecdotally, for uh, trying complement inhibition in these patients. And now I have to turn the thing back, right? Did I do it? No? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Oh, oh good. Okay. I can you? All right. That was very good. Um, let me see. There we are. I'm back on screen with you. That was excellent. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think the question is, do you see this, um, the treatment of this, if we are going to call this a complementopathy or um, a thrombotic microangiopathy, do you see the treatment of this being different than how you would treat catastrophic antiphospholipid? Um, you know, obviously we always have to pick from all of our options for any individual patient that we have. And a lot of what, when I make that long list of treatments that you give, um, what really happens, we get a lot of patients, I shouldn't say a lot because it's not that common, but we get patients with lupus who have partial syndromes. So you can start with high-dose steroids. You can give a few plasma exchanges. They're all better. You can stop now and then maybe give them something to, to keep them you know, to keep them suppressed, but you don't have to keep hitting them with new things. Um, so I think, I think you do have to tailor therapy to what's going on in the patient day by day. Uh, but there is an interesting case to be made for plasma exchange in sepsis or what they call viral sepsis, where you get this cytokine storm because it's actually taking those cytokines out. And of course, one of the things that is currently being kind of hoped for is that um, convalescent plasma will help these people because people have now made some decent antibodies that work. Uh, so wouldn't it be cool if you thought about the idea of doing plasma exchange, but instead of putting in just like some plasma, you give them convalescent plasma as the replacement plasma. That could be kind of a cool idea. Uh, yeah, uh, Anthony Fauci talked a little bit about that this morning as a future new therapies. And when he mentioned convalescent plasma, he also mentioned, well, you might as well, for that reason, might as well give, even try uh, gamma globulin or, or IVIG uh, in these patients yeah. as well. For, Which might work for the sepsis aspects as well. That's the point I'm making is that is that these kind of special treatments for these conditions that have to do with all kinds of factors you're trying to get rid of that are causing coagulation will also get rid of a lot of the factors that are causing cytokine storm. So I thought when you started your lecture and said, what does COVID-19 have to do with lupus? And you said nothing. I thought, oh, shortest grand rounds ever. We're, we're done. <laughs> But uh, I'm glad that you gave us the rest of the You told me to story. make it short. <laughs> so do you routinely test for ADMTS in patients who you suspect is having um, either thrombotic microangiopathy or the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome? I don't because I never see them. I just see lupus patients, as most people know. <laughs> but if, if it's a lupus patient and they get hospitalized with one of these conditions, which is quite rare again, you know, maybe every couple of years we have somebody like that, the, I, I don't have to order anything, Jack, because the rheumatology fellows will order it. Yeah, 
they they seem to find a nice long list and yes they'll order all kinds of things i don't need because i know how to treat it i'm not sure i care if they've got lupus and they've got this i figure it's a bad thing and i know how to treat it so so again sticking on treatment then um is there uh, do you think the role of immunosuppression more aggressive um immunosuppression is should be part of the regimen here i i agree with you right off the bat it's going to be steroids and the next few moves might be enough but should there be a role for stepping up the immunosuppression in such patients? I think there is, but I think um, a lot of what's going on today is a little bit like rheumatology fellows. And I shouldn't badmouth rheumatology fellows. We may have some brilliant rheumatology fellows listening to this tonight, but we do, we do. Uh, everybody is like jumping to anti-IL-6 targeted therapies because IL-6 is important in cytokine storm. I keep going, how do you know that's enough? You know, these people are sick. Let's whoop them and then worry about what targeted therapy would work. All right, so um, Dr. Fung down in Waco says, COVID-19 patients show an increase in von Willebrand's, von Willebrand's factor, but not so much in ADAMTS. The clinical picture is much likely described as in CAPS um, and uh, antiphospholipid. Uh, is, this part of the, is this part of what you described? Sure. I think so. Okay. I mean, well, if you get if you get increased von Willebrand's factor and you're in a situation of clotting, you're going to trap platelets and you're going to increase your risk for clotting. Yep. And there are lots of ways to increase von Willebrand's factor, not just uh, having a inherited deficit of what pleases it. You know, there are other ways to get too much. Do you think there's a role for rituximab in, in managing any of this? Well, um, the reason it got tried in the catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome is because it was new and we were all behaving very much the way I'm accusing people of behaving today. We didn't know what to give, so we gave something strong and new, and it, it, it anecdotally seemed to work very well. It seemed to, seemed to turn things off in some of these patients where you couldn't stop it. Yeah. Do you think our patients with lupus might be protected from catastrophic antiphospholipid or these thrombotic complications because they're on chronic plaquenil and the antithrombotic? Uh, well, uh, I, I know factoids about that, but I don't know the truth, but I'll tell you my factoids. Uh, my factoids are that we once um, did a study and we're not the only people because somebody else actually published their study. We just showed ours at some ACR meeting. Uh, but uh, if you look at a population of lupus patients and you just split in half those on plaquenil and those not on plaquenil, at least retrospectively, you get a lot more thrombosis in those not on plaquenil. Okay. So it seems possible, but you're right. It's a, a, not necessarily a factor. It's a factoid. Yeah, it's not the truth, it's a factoid. But if I misspelled factoid, it could become a fact. That's, yeah, uh, but since I am known to perseverate, I'll keep going till I get to factoid. So uh, Dr. Leibowitz, uh, Evan Leibowitz says, great talk. How about attacking something more proximal in the complement pathway like C1, C1Q esterase inhibitors? Uh, sure. Yeah. Are, yeah. Do you have um, any experience or knowledge of eculizumab either in CAPS or in these COVID patients? I can tell you eculizumab yeah, is in clinical trials in COVID-19 uh, uh, patients. Yes, I, I saw it on clinicaltrials.gov. Yeah, I know that. So do you have any experience with using eculizumab in, in lupus patients? Um, we have a little bit of anecdotal, you know, experience, but not in this situation. I've actually never had it in this situation, no. 
Yeah. Not not in a like a lupus TTP or anything like that. No, but there are certainly uh, published. There's case series on, in caps. Um, uh, Yumesh actually asked a question about: Do you think that the the concept you described with COVID, um, do you think that is lectin mediated or immune complex mediated activation of complement? As you said, uh, lectin, yeah. actually, lectin has been known to activate this. Uh, um, uh, SARS has been known to activate the lectin pathway. Yeah. Well, you know, the slide I showed just showed you what's been published and what you know, somebody observed or was able to kind of, uh, you know, implicate. That doesn't mean that all three aren't involved. So, you know, how I'm looking at it is we're not sure, and, and it may not matter at this point, but we're not sure whether this whole thing isn't just happening from the innate immune response, in which case you don't really, you're not going to invoke immune complexes triggering off complement. But, you know, these people are trying to make antibodies. They'll start early and they'll try and they may fail. And that's exactly who's going to, in my opinion, it's exactly who's going to make immune complexes because they've just got all these antibodies that aren't working and they're not getting rid of the virus and they're not getting opsonized and they're floating around and maybe even attaching to parts of self as, you know, what happens in autoimmunity. If that happens, then it makes sense that it could be the classical pathway. So um, you've made a case for this syndrome in COVID looking like CAPS. Um, and that's part of a family that you described of these complementopathies. Um, yeah. Where do you see that going in rheumatology and lupus care? Is, I mean, do we have to wait for the disaster, for the fire to occur before we get a Well, look, fire as, as, as rheumatologists, we have an, a very important choice to make. Are we going to call this atypical hemolytic remix syndrome? Then we can just send it to the nephrologist, you know? Or are we going to take care of these patients because we are the real immunologists? So we have to decide who we are, don't we? Yes, I agree. I agree. I think we have to be thinking about this because this is, uh, this is a, a very small, and this is one of the areas where a rheumatologist could get involved in the management of, of, of the COVID patient. Um, I frankly am. I'm kind of on a on a I'm kind of on a crusade here. I think this is a place where rheumatologists should get involved in the management of COVID patients, because people are still dying. Until they figure out a way to cure them without us, maybe we should help. Right. Um, are you familiar with the COVID toes thing? It's not something you can buy on Amazon. It's a uh, no. sort of dusky looking fingers that sometimes look yep. like um, chill blame. Seen in lupus and seen in caps. I mean, this is where you drop the I microphone mean. and walk off screen. I think that you're done. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what this means, but I'll ask this from Dr. Fung. Antibody-directed enhancement might occur in patients after post-infectious adaptive immunity has developed. Um, IVIG was suggested. What's your comment? IVIG is one of the treatments, yeah. Okay. Um, do you use a lot of IVIG or uh, is it? We do, because think about it. If, you, if you've got a person, particularly if it's a somewhat older person with comorbidities, you know, a lot of, if, if, I, I didn't mention this, but a lot of these autopsy reports were showing bacterial pneumonias. These people are getting super imposing pneumonias, right, because they're sick. So uh, you'd rather give IBIG than something that's going to knock out what little immune system that's still functioning for them. Yeah. Um, Dr. Quinette down at uh, Oxner in, in uh, Louisiana asks, uh, what's your strategy for getting 
insurance or hospital approval to spend um, hundreds of thousands of dollars on drugs like eculizumab and a lot of the drugs, a lot of the treatments we're talking about here are really expensive. Is this a treat first, ask questions later and hope that it doesn't become an issue or? It, well, I mean, if somebody's dying in your unit and you can't get approval for eculizumab, I think we start with high-dose steroids and, and see if you can get somebody in there to do plasma exchange. You know, you start with things you can do. Right. And we didn't used to have eculizumab. We used to take care of these patients. That, that case in 2005, we didn't have eculizumab then. Or we didn't know we had it. If, I don't know when it came out, but we didn't know we had it. Um, David Collier says... Um, uh, uh, his daughter seen patients with COVID toes, uh, purpuric and, you know, toes like lesions like you described, um, but all of them were negative for COVID. So when you see that in your clinic, what else are you thinking? Immune complexes or is this really a complex? I, I, I would check a D-dimer. I mean, there's cheap things you can do. I would check a D-dimer. It's going to be sky high if it's this. I'd check uh, LDH, could be high. Uh, I would, you know, I would check for uh, C-reactive protein is often high in these patients. Um, there's, you know, there's a, a list of things you can do to kind of see if you can make a case that there's inflammation and coagulation going on. Um, and then, you know, if, if you're lucky and somebody has, a, you know, if somebody's a little bit younger and isn't diabetic and has kidney failure, somebody may do a biopsy for you and then you can see what's going on in there. Um. Dr. Nimri asked a question about what's your cutoff before you start to get aggressive in what you may think is a complement-mediated disease? Is it a certain platelet count or a certain level of hemolytic anemia? Or, or if you're thinking it, you're doing it. Well, if you have, you know, I was sort of saying this is a spectrum. In COVID, we don't see hemolytic anemia. Or we don't, I mean, I, we don't seem to be seeing it. I don't know if anybody's looking at that point. But if it is, it's not bad like lupus because we're not getting that, you know, really crashing kind of uh, hemoglobin. If you saw a lupus patient with crashing hemoglobin like that, that's hemolytic anemia. Now, hemolytic anemia all by itself will respond to steroids almost always, and you really don't need to do too much. But then when you start to see the platelets going down at the same time and you start to see, you know, kidney function deteriorating or, you know, protein, a lot of proteinuria coming up, you're in trouble and then you act very, very fast. I think in COVID, it's sort of the same way. Um, if you see a person with hypoxia and they're, 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 this is sort of a classic picture, they've got hypoxia, but their lungs aren't all that bad. Maybe they have a little ground glass opacities on their CT scan, but not a lot. They seem like they ought to be well aerating and they're not. And that tells you that the microvasculature of the lung is clotting up. And then you look for all those other signs, and then I would at least be aggressive in some way. You know, if, you, if, if you're in this situation where people go, how dare you, then try IVIG because no one's going to say how dare you for that. Do you think that all COVID-positive patients should be put on aspirin, Harry Rush, or that all patients with COVID who are hospitalized should be put on anticoagulation? I think uh, there's a lot of talk going on out there right now among hematologists and cardiologists. And there's a whole uh, sort of group that are now calling for not just prophylactic anticoagulation, but full dose anticoagulation as soon as they're hospitalized. Then there's another group that says, no, when they get really sick, we'll do that. But almost everybody wants to do that. Um, 
Um, one of the docs asked a question about the role of IL-1 inhibitors in severe inflammatory responses in COVID. One of the news items I was going to mention was a report from Lancet Rheumatology last week. Anna Kinner was studied in COVID positive ARDS patients, not ICU admitted. Um, they had to have a high CRP and a high ferritin to get in. 29 patients were treated with Anakinra, 17 yeah. controls. They're not really, it's not really, it's a pseudo controlled study. It's not really. Nonetheless, day 21 outcomes were better in Anakinra, 90% versus controls, 56%. And there were actually more like discharges on Anakinra. Obviously, Anakinra uh, lowered CRP and respiratory function better than did the controls that didn't get Anakinra. What's yeah. your take on that? I have two things to say about that. The first thing I have to say about that is that it's theoretically very promising because IL-1 is very important in cytokine storm and all of these different uh, connected interplay of cytokines. So it's, it's probably a good, a, a good place to think. And the second thing I'm going to say about it is I knew they'd finally find something to do with Anakinra. Yeah, I know. Um, it's... It's a drug that I actually did a lot of trials on early on uh, in the 90s, <laughs> but, um, and hence I still am fond of it. Um, uh, let's see. Most people who've actually, most people who've actually uh, uh, utilized it think it's a good drug, but it never really found a place, did it? So Evan Leibowitz has talked about his experience in, uh, in his center where um, by asking, by being involved in chart reviews and whatnot, he was asked to be part of the task force and he found it to be really uh, interesting and useful to be in these uh, intense discussions with ID pulmonary critical care and hematologists. It's, I'm sure he said he's learned much. I'm sure he's actually taught them a lot, especially about the appropriate use of our drugs. So I think we, we should be advocating for rheumatologists taking a bigger role there. Yeah. Well, I, I think we should be because I remember when I was a fellow, when I, I was also a rheumatology fellow once, believe it or not, and uh, I remember that you'd, you'd be in the middle of the night, you'd show up in the ICU, and you'd see the hematologist, the infectious disease guy, and the rheumatologist. That's who they called, and then you knew they didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and they were so glad that you showed up because... <laughs> Maybe you can write something in the chart that's going to actually look good, because right now we don't know what we're doing. Um, has there been a COVID thrombosis in a patient with lupus on either rituximab or Benlista? I don't think we know the answer to that. I think that the next week's um, um, authors or, or speakers uh, includes Philip Robinson, the guy who's leading the Global Rheumatology Alliance, and he's going to maybe give you a new data cut on the patients they have admitted. And there are plenty of lupus patients, plenty who've been on rituximab. I don't know about, um, about Ben Lista, but we'll, we'll hear about that uh, maybe next week. Do you have any experience with uh, COVID, lupus, and those two drugs? Um, well, in Oklahoma, we don't have enough COVID patients to be able to say too much about lupus, right? Because that's even a subset of a subset of a subset. But I have talked to colleagues in New York because I was curious and uh, the problem is that everything is so disorganized that they can tell me, I think the patient was supposed to have been on, but they have no idea when they got their last dose. But there certainly are lupus patients in the intensive care unit and quite sick. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, our drugs do not protect our patients. There have been plenty of reports, and, and we've covered that on room yeah. now. Um, um, Dr. Saab asked a question about RC3 and C4 low in COVID patients, my experience is that they have not been low. 
uh, in COVID my, hotline. My, I, I don't know who's testing it because I haven't seen anything published on it, and I, I'm, you know, nobody around where I am tests it. Okay. Um, do you want to ask a question of the audience? But, but you know, lupus, lupus is very special because it's got a, you know, it's 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 a complement consumptive kind of a thing. But you can have complement activation without having a low C3 and C4. So, you know, you, yeah. Especially in the face of um, overwhelming inflammation, where complement is going to behave yeah. as an acute yeah. phase reaction as well. It's like your your white count, you know, because of uh, infection of a four, it could be really worrisome in a lupus patient. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, all right. I think we're going to close it right there. I want to uh, thank our audience for these questions. I do want to remind the audience that next week we're going to have um, um, uh, speakers from down under, uh, and that would include Dr. Um, uh, Philip Robinson. I have that, that slide here. Let me see if we can make this a little bit bigger for everyone. Um, sorry about that. And um, this is going to be next Tuesday's Grand Rounds. Uh, Philip Robinson, who has led the room COVID registry by the Global Rheumatology Alliance, and uh, Philip's from Queens, Queensland, uh, has been a reporter for Room now. And Peter Nash, a good friend from Australia, is going to also be on hand to talk about uh, COVID from Oz. I guess Oz means Australia. So should be a really interesting session. These guys are real chatty. Uh, they got a lot to share. I think it's going to be really quite cool. Uh, Joan, thank you so much for doing this. You were just wonderful as, as expected. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everyone. Good night.